The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Voice America welcomes you to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Now, here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Happy July 4th weekend, everybody. I want to encourage everybody to have a lot of fun. I want everybody to be very, very careful with how much they drink and party over the weekend and really always be safe and think responsibly when you're partying and Today we have what I would like to call Ask Your Employment Attorney What to Do, and his name is Adam Triger, and Adam is a partner with Stowell, Zylanga, Ruth, Vaughn, and Triger. Welcome, Adam. Hi, Cindy. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. We're going to talk about a lot of things today, um, and it's, it's so interesting. One of the things that I always tell clients and associates and businesses that I work with is if they don't have an employment attorney, they better have an HR person that is quite familiar with employment law because it is the little things that, that could grow into something very major. You're right. And um, so we're very glad to have our own employment attorney on the show today to share some rise, wise revelations about precedents in all different kinds of employment law, but... We're going to start with something a little bit more fun and something that people in general don't think about very often. Um, I know that the customer probably doesn't think about it very much at all, and I think employers in the food service industry ought to be thinking about it because it is a tricky issue, and that is the California laws regarding tipping. And I had heard you give a talk that was just kind of fascinating about a whole history of precedents that were built um, before the year of 1975 and leading up to current times with Starbucks. And I think if you give a similar short talk with allowing me to ask questions in between, it'll be very, very useful for those listeners of mine that are in the food service industry. And it might make consumers a little bit more aware of what they are putting into the tip jar. So let's start with how things were before 1975, Adam, in terms of tipping. That's, that's great. I will do the best I can, Cindy. Thank you very much for the opportunity. So before 1975, of course, there were a great number of restaurants and, and um, waiters, and most restaurants in this state and elsewhere were very fair and reasonable with their waiters and waitresses and other people who worked for them. But there were some here in California especially, that um, some might think abused their, their staffs. There were two major ways that they abused them. Uh, one was regarding uh, crediting their tips against their wages. So the problem here, what they did here was they would pay their, their waiters and waitresses a minimum wage, and way back then it was a pretty small amount, 
say that. And they would say, look, until you, your tips are going to be credited against your, against your minimum wage. So if you make, if let's say you make $2 an hour, if you make $1.50 in tips today or in an hour, then they get, that $1.50 is credited against the $2 an hour they would otherwise get, and they get paid 50 cents by the employer for their wage, and they get the $1.50 for tips, and that gives them to the minimum wage. If, on the other hand, they make $2 an hour in tips or more, the company, the restaurant, wouldn't pay them any wage, and all they would get to keep would be their tips. In that way, the restaurant was able to protect its own cash flow and its own personnel costs, and really on the backs of their of their wait staff and their other their other staff members. The other uh, problem that they had uh, times in, before 1975 was that if a, wet, a waiter or you know, a busboy, whoever it was, got a tip, the restaurant owner would force them to cough up their tip and to would cough up their tip and would. Um, Make them share their tip with the management or even the owner, so that the owner would not even allow them to keep the tips, but rather would um, would uh, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Would rather make them uh, contribute their tips to the restaurant to include to be included with their um, their own cash flow. So anyway, that, those are the problems. One, sharing the tips with the, or sharing the tips with the management of the restaurant, or two, getting their tips credited against their um, their wages. So. That's, that, that was the history. Okay, and what came of that? I mean, well, you have a labor code that was developed from that. Yeah. Um, in, in 1975, uh, the, the California legislature saw this problem, heard, heard the cries of their constituents, and decided to pass a law uh, known as Labor Code Section 351. That Labor Code section is still in force today. And um, perhaps I should just read it. It's only two sentences long. May I do that? Of course. The Labor Code section says, No employer or agent shall collect, take, or receive any gratuity or part thereof that is paid, given to, or left for an employee by a patron or deduct any amount from wages due to an employee on account of a gratuity or require an employee to credit the amount or any part thereof of a gratuity against and as part of the wages due the employee from the employer. That sentence, uh, in, in legally speak, says that, that you can't, um, can't do the two things that they were doing before. You can't credit tips against wages, and you can't force the, empl- the employee to uh, give their tips to management or to the, company, to the restaurant owner. And the second sentence says, Every gratuity is hereby declared to be the sole property of the employee or employees to whom it was paid, given, or left for. That's what the Labor Code section said in 1975. A lot of people thought that ended the matter. No, because 15 years later, there were all kinds of problems. It's true. Uh, you know, the, the, if you read this, this section literally, you might think that if you give a waiter a tip of, say, $10, that waiter keeps that $10 in his pocket and does not share it with anyone, and it belongs to him. Um, and he gets to keep his wages, too. That seems to be the face value read of the statute. Um, and so in 1990, 20, uh, 15 years later, a, a waiter named Layton sued their employer um, restaurant, which was called Old Heidelberg. And what Old Heidelberg did was they had a tip pooling policy. A tip pooling policy uh, was something that has been around a long, long time. It wasn't new. Old Heidelberg didn't develop it. But this is the first time anybody ever sued somebody over the tip pooling policy. What a tip pooling policy does, many of your listeners may already know, is it, it has the... Um, Everyone who gets a tip, every waiter, every busboy, has to give their tip into a generalized collective tip pool 
at the restaurant. And then at the end of the night, the restaurant management divides up that, the whole pool among the employees in the restaurant so that they, everyone gets a fair allocation of the tips, at least a fair allocation in the minds of the restaurant owner. So if you give uh, the waiter $10, perhaps the, uh, bus, the busser would get um, $2, and perhaps the bartender would get $2, and perhaps the hostess would get $1, and the waiter would then get to keep $5, that kind of a thing. Right. So anyway, this, this um, person, Layton, decided that that was not fair, read the statute, Labor Code 351, and said, no, this entire tip belongs to me. You cannot make me put this into a pool and share it with others. And the in-suit, in that case, uh, went into the Court of Appeal of California, and the Court of Appeal said, uh, did not agree with the plaintiff, Layton, and ruled that tip pooling policies were legal. However, they made, there were some nuances to that particular uh, decision, as always, and the nuance was that the court said that tip, pooling, tip pools can be shared only with people who provided direct service to the table. And that excluded a bunch of employees at the restaurant from being part of a tip pool, um, but, in, but was inclusive of basically uh, bus, bussers, waiters, hosts and hostesses, and some bartenders that might have brought, brought drinks to a table, but not all bartenders. Right, right. And um, another thing that the Leighton case did was it, was it really uh, clarified that an agent of, a man, of, the, of, the, of the restaurant, that is people who cannot share in tips at all, were management. So if you were a manager or an assistant manager of the restaurant, or certainly an owner, you could not share in the tip pool. And I, you know, Adam, I think... That's pretty clear, and in terms of the way that other labor laws work, it's almost like a time card situation. I mean, you know, it's exempt versus non-exempt in a way. I, you know, you, when you're management, sometimes you, you know, it's very, very clear that you can't have things that other people are doing, and vice versa. Yes, you're absolutely right. Managers are um, often treated differently under the in, under the law and in and in practice by employers. And I think in this case, the um, both the legislature in, in enacting the labor code section and the court in 1990 um, basically viewed the idea that a patron who goes to a restaurant when they give a tip to a waiter, uh, they don't they don't mean to give it to, to give more money to the manager. What they mean to do is thank the whole staff that helped them for a good, uh, for a nice service experience, and that does not include management. Right. Okay. Well, we have a couple of more minutes to conclude that, or we could move on to Boudreaux versus Dave and Busters. But well, that's perhaps up I could to take you. a few more minutes to talk about, you know, in the, in the ensuing years between um, 1990 and 2009, I mean, almost, you know, for 19 years, um, the law st- stood as, as it was there and stated in, in Leighton. There were lots of litigations, um, not particularly of note, uh, that we could talk about for a long time, but basically other employees tried to say that they were not subject to tip pools. For example, there was a, um, a plaintiff in a hotel in its industry who was a uh, person who brought room service to a, to a room, and he was forced to share tips, and he said no, and the court said, yes, you also are subject to the latent rule, and you also can be part of a tip pooling policy. There were lots of uh, restaurants who got sued who were wrong, who viewed tip pooling policies as broader than what the latent court said and tried to include all bartenders or tried to include um, kitchen staff, and those restaurants routinely were uh, handed their hats in litigation. 
uh, even though they were trying to do a, a good thing in their eyes by including other uh, people into the tip pool. Courts always said no. Layton and uh, says you can't do that, and uh, and therefore limited limited the restaurants' rights to help their other employees in that way. Okay, let's revisit this when we come back in the next segment, since we have to take a commercial break. This was very very useful information. Again, food service um, food service operators really should listen to this show, whether you're running a restaurant or really any kind of food service industry employer. Very, very useful information and reviewing some of the precedents about tipping and what's, you know, what's right by law and what's not. And we're going to come back with more with Adam Trager, Ask Adam Trager, in just a moment. So stand by. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. Women in business today face many challenges in advancing their careers and reaching their goals. There are corporate executives, entrepreneurs, and business owners that have made their mark in business. Now you can learn their secrets and tips. Listen to Women Mean Business as your host, Bonnie Marcus, explores how to thrive in the business environment, navigate the workplace, and climb the corporate ladder. Listen live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel and effectively promote yourself today. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. If you have a question or comment, call in at 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Here's Cindy Rakowitz. 
July 4th weekend, and many of us will be celebrating by going to all different restaurants and bars and having fun. But what Adam Trager is talking to us about it is what goes on with those tips that you're trying to leave for people when you're trying to be nice and when you're trying to acknowledge that somebody did some good work when they were serving you at your table. Because the history of this show is, for those of you that are just tuning in, that tipping laws have changed. Um, have evolved since 1975 with quite a lot of precedents and new new laws and things that affected who gets tipped and um, how an employer can or cannot use this tip against a person's wages. And in these days, they cannot, right, Adam? Yes, right. <laughs> okay. I just wanted to make sure I was on track because <laughs> you're the employment attorney and I have to check with you. Sure enough. Um, and we, we really went through the history with different cases and, um, you know, these days we're at a place where um, we left off in the last segment where, where it was determined who were people who were servicing patrons. And, you know, the, the court specifically held that bartenders are such employees that are entitled to the tipping pool. I don't know if we specifically started going into the Boudreaux versus Dave and Buster's case, but that's where I, are, I am in my notes. <laughs> yeah, we didn't quite get there, but that's where we are, too. Listen, um, 2009 was a banner year for tipping uh, law. It's amazing um, that there was really not that much activity for 19 years, uh, certainly no changes in the law. And then uh, in mid-2009, just last year, um, we had three uh, landmark cases that uh, made a lot of changes. So the first one was uh, Budrow versus Dave & Busters. My nine-year-old son loves Dave & Busters. Um, It was March March 2009. And in that case, um, there was a tip pool, a pretty standard tip pool. And uh, in the tip pool, bartenders received 1% of the tip pool in a particular day. And um, and uh, Mr. Budrow su- uh, sued and uh, said that uh, bartenders do not provide direct service to the table. Um, and you might remember that in the Leighton case in 1990, the court said if they don't provide direct service to the table, they don't get to be part of the tip pool. And, of course, some bartenders bring drinks to the table, but others don't. They put the drink on the bar, and the waiter or waitress comes and picks up the drink and brings it to the table. And that was the argument of Budrow in the Dave and Buster's case. But in this case, the court said, no, that direct service to the table uh, part of the Leighton case was, um, is, well, not exactly. They didn't say it was actually wrong, but they said that it wasn't anything that was precedential, that it was, take, it was blown up way out of context, and that really uh, anybody who provides direct or indirect service to the table should be part of a tip pool, based on the philosophy that when a patron leaves a tip, they're trying to, again, uh, reward anybody who uh, gives them good service. Right. Okay, so that's now we have a new development. Yes, a new development. Direct or indirect service. Anybody who provides service at the table is going to be part of this tip pool. Um, but then in the same month, it really there were companion cases. In the same month, March 2009, um, in a case called Etheridge versus Reigns International, um, this was actually much more interesting than, Dave and, than the Dave and Buster's case to me. Uh, in this case, the Reigns International, which owned a, a restaurant, um, allowed their kitchen staff, their dishwashers, their line cooks to share in the tip pool. Ah, um, well, that gets that gets away from the directly and indirectly serving 
customers, doesn't it? Absolutely, and it was it was it was near and dear to my heart because I had a, a client myself uh, in about 2004 time frame that was sued for doing exactly that, and under the latent precedent, uh, my client decided to settle, and we got a good settlement, but he still decided to settle because we thought that there was no reason to fight as kitchen staff had been held previously not to be directly servicing the table. But um, in Rain- Rain's International, restaurant owner decided that they were going to fight that all the way as high as they could go. And in the end, they, they scored a victory for uh, themselves and many other restaurateurs who feel that the p- people who work in the kitchens um, deserve to be part of the tip pool. Also, they're often low-wage wor- low earners. And, of course, without good food, restaurants usually die a pretty quick death. Okay, but, all right, here's the question. And when I'm putting my legal hat on, my law hat, doesn't that open up the gates for everybody to want to be entitled to tips? Absolutely it does. I mean, uh, everybody except managers uh, who are agents um, who are agents of the, of the restaurant owner. But it certainly does. And in the Etheridge case, the court held that a tip pool can be uh, shared with anyone in what they call the chain of service. So they've now dispensed with the with the uh, way they used to talk about it, direct service to the table and then indirect service to the table. Now it's anybody in the chain of service. Well, that really could be anybody. Imagine if you're a, a, a large restaurant and you know maybe a, a national chain and the employee is purchasing uh, foodstuffs to be sold to you know patrons. Is that person in the chain of service? Without that person, there'd be no food to eat, right? Well, you know, well, janitorial staff comes to mind because if you're going to dishwashers and cooks, you know, the janitorial staff is a huge part of the restaurant business. You're, that's absolutely correct also. And so far, I don't know that anybody is sharing tips with janitorial staff or, on the other hand, with, you know, purchasing agents. Um, however, I think that if you were a restaurant uh, patron sitting at your table eating your meal and leaving a tip, you know, I wonder if the regular patron believes that part of their tip is going to be going to a janitor or a purchasing agent. So with the Etheridge versus Reigns, okay, um, this specific, I call it the opening up the gates case, okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still open right now. I mean, it seems that way unless things became resolved in the future cases that you talk about, and I don't really think it's, does when we move on to Starbucks. No. I mean, if I'm a janitor, and I'm using a janitor because it's, it's just so archetypical. I mean, you know, there are other, there are certainly other roles as well. A janitor could really sue a restaurant based on Etheridge versus Rain still today based on the precedent. Yes, they could. Um, you know, I would think that the more likely avenue of suit might be that a restaurant owner decides to be very egalitarian and decides to include janitors in the tip pool. The, a waiter doesn't like the fact that part of their tips are going to that janitor and the waiter sues. That's the way every other one of these cases came down the pike. But I think that a janitor, if they were enterprising, or perhaps a plaintiff's lawyer, if they were enterprising, could try to take the idea that any tip pool that doesn't include uh, janitors would, would be somehow unlawful. And, of um, course, if they're U.S. citizens. and uh, <laughs> Exactly. I mean, if they're not U.S. citizens, it would be kind of difficult to probably fess up and face our legal branches, I would guess. Yeah, well, there are uh, certainly uh, practical reasons why uh, non-U.S. Well, not about citizens, but uh, undocumented workers, illegal aliens, don't uh, want to step up and sue people. On the other hand, uh, your listeners might want to know that under California law, at least, illegal aliens, undocumented workers, are absolutely protected by the California Labor Codes and uh, do have standing to sue in California courts. 
Well, good. You might make a lot of action happen from the show. <laughs> I mean, you know, this gets passed on very virally. Let's go to a case that has a more familiar restaurant name involved, and that's Starbucks. Let's talk about what happened there. Yeah. Um, so three months later, in June 2009, the case of Chow versus Starbucks came down. This, is a, this case um, was argued and was considered by the lawyers and the lower court judges to be just one of the many line of cases we've been talking about. They were taught, they thought that it was a tip pooling case. They argued it that way. But in the end, it turned out to be very, very different. What happened in Starbucks was not about a patron leaving a $10 bill on a table, but rather um, the quintessential tip jar. There's a tip jar up in Starbucks. We've all seen it before. You go up and get your coffee. You walk up. The jar says, please you know, leave a tip. And some people throw some money in a tip jar. And, you know, all the lawyers and all the lower court judges thought that the tip jar was the same thing as a tip pool. But the Court of Appeal disagreed. Um, but anyway, before I get there, so what happened in, the Starbucks, in Starbucks, their policy was that what, what was supposed to happen with the money in the tip jar? How was it going to be divvied out? Well, Starbucks allowed the money in the tip jar to be shared with everybody who worked at Starbucks, um, it, uh, excluding the manager. So the manager of the particular Starbucks did not get to share. Which makes but, sense. I mean, you know, but that's, they did, that's but okay. They, yes, but they did include um, shift supervisors. A shift supervisor at Starbucks uh, is a person who is not the store manager, does not have the ability to hire and fire people, isn't the person in charge of the, of the, of the, of the store, but does have supervisory control over the workers on their shift, tells them you know, where to stand, who pulls the coffee, when to take breaks. Um, you know, it's sort of a, a, like, a, like a line supervisor in a factory, perhaps, a low level, the lowest kind of level of manager. And they, uh, they were paid hourly like regular employees, not a salary like management. And so Starbucks considered them to be um, non-management employees. And the baristas who sued uh, in a class action claimed the shift supervisors were not low-level employees, but rather were managers and were therefore agents of the employer and therefore not entitled to share in the tip pool. And that's how that particular case came about. Also in the case, won, didn't they? One more thing before I get there. Yes, they did win, but before I, was I get there, sorry. another <laughs> a s- small issue was well, how the Starbucks take that. How does the Starbucks divvy that money out? How do they allocate the money? And Starbucks did it by a by proportionally to the hours worked. So they would basically take a tip, take the chip jar proceeds for a week. They would divide up the time that the employees, including the chip supervisors, worked in that week, and they would divide up the tip, the tip jar proportionally. So those, those are the facts of the case. And as you say, Cindy, um, the barista class, it was a class action, the barista class prevailed. The lower court decided that the shift supervisors were indeed agents uh, and man, uh, of management, and awarded the barista class $105 million. That's mind-blowing. Did that blow you away? It blew me away. blew me away. Not oh. the first time Starbucks has been subject to a $100 million or close to it verdict. Um, there was another case uh, about eight or nine years ago in an uh, employment law case where they were, and that case was also um, reversed as to the amount of money, but not as to the, as to the, uh, the final verdict. Starbucks still lost. It just paid a lot less. In this case, the, the, court, the whole case was reversed. Well, that's, I mean, I, that's amazing to me. Out of It's going to be, I think, a very key labor case that will go down in history. It's huge. I think you're right. I think you're right. 
So let's talk about what the Court of Appeal said when they reversed this gigantic verdict for okay, the barista. we can, but we're going to have to take a commercial break, That's and we're going to do that right after this break. So stand by, and we will hear more about the baristas and Starbucks with Adam Trieger when we come back from these messages. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. Stop wasting time. Get what you want. Live your dream life. The Dream Big Revolution. Imagine having more freedom, better health, more money, happiness. Could your business be more successful? Unless you're living the life you want, you're wasting precious time. Your life is too valuable to waste. Let Leanne Hilgers help you find health, wealth, and happiness. Listen in and live your dream life. Join the Dream Big Revolution. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, on the 7th Wave Network. Never be satisfied. Let that be a lesson you take away from Double Time with Double D, featuring businessman and former NFL star Dave Duerson. We'll talk about the NFL with special focuses on the game itself, and Double D will take your calls and answer your emails live on the show. It's not Football 101, but rather an in-depth look in the locker room, on the field, away from the field, and opening up the mind of the player. The program will also feature positive messages. So tune in to Double Time with Double D, Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Sports Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Get free advice from crisis communications guru Cindy Rakowitz now. Call 866-472-5788. Let's get back to Stars of PR. Here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. We're back with the brilliant Adam Trieger, employment attorney extraordinaire. And Adam, I had to cut you off for our fine advertisers as we were still talking about the Starbucks case. What did you want to add? Oh, I just wanted to say what the Court of Appeal reasoned when they reversed this case because it's quite interesting and it was uh, really uh, precedent-setting. The Court of Appeal said that this tip jar methodology of, of tips was not a tip pooling policy at all. Rather, they called it something brand new, and they just they, they made, made this up. They said it's a tip allocation policy, not a tip pooling policy. 
Um, generally speaking, uh, for your listeners, this is what courts, you know, are empowered to do. They can they can look at set of facts, look at the law, and then concoct a new legal theory out of thin air that no one had ever heard of before in order to rule in a way that they want to rule. Um, and this is what this court of appeal did, creating a new a new uh, thing called a tip allocation policy. This wasn't even what Starbucks called it or anybody else. The court just made it up. And in the tip allocation policy is is basically defined as a policy where tips are left for collective people by the patron. And then the, all that the employer does is to divvy it out in a, in a particular allocation that they make up. The court tried to get into the heads of the patrons to say, well, what is a patron thinking when they put money into a tip jar? And they thought it's not the same thing that a patron is thinking when they hand or leave $10 on a table. Uh, when they leave $10 on a table, the court feels that the, um, that the patron is trying to thank the people, you know, the actual particular people who made his, his, um, his or her experience uh, good, the, the, the waiter that he saw, the busser that he saw, the bartender that he saw. On the other hand, in a tip allocation uh, uh, idea, the person is leaving a tip for everyone at the store, and therefore it's the, the intent of the patron is different. How the court knows what the intent of each patron is that leaves a dollar in the tip jar, I don't know, but that is how they differentiated the plan. Interesting. And then, um, when, now that they've called it something different, they're free to make up new rules about it. And so they said the Leighton case and all of its progeny, like Boudreaux and Etheridge, none of those things apply. They're not applicable to this situation, so they're able to make up their own new precedent. And they said that in a tip allocation plan, um, management, even, even the store manager, the, the person who's in charge of the whole kit and caboodle, can share in the tip allocation. Okay, so now we have the nuance of the tipping jar. Yes, exactly right. <laughs> and here they said that as long as the management can be said to have um, added to the, to the overall service to the customer, then that manager could be said to have earned the tip him, him or herself and therefore is entitled to some allocation of the tip jar. So this, now, in this case, Starbucks did not share it with the store manager. They only shared it with the shift supervisor. But the court said here they didn't have to decide um, that issue. The shift supervisor was more than entitled to their share of the allocation, and therefore reversed. I'm sure that I'm sure that there are a lot of people that are scratching their heads, saying, "Oh my God, there's so much I have to keep track of." And I'm going to throw a question at you, Adam, that you may not be able to answer right now, and that's okay. But it's, it's a question regarding tipping and employment in general that might go outside of the restaurant industry. And again, if you can't answer it, you could maybe perhaps surmise based on the laws and precedents that have been set. But a question that I want to ask you in summary of all of this is how do employers look at tipping when you go outside of the restaurant, for example, when it comes to um, you know a bellhop at a hotel, well, I, I think I can answer that question. You know, the labor code section we talked about earlier, section 351, does not uh, differentiate between different kinds of employers. It, it applies to all employers: restaurant employers, hotel employers, um, you know, any any employer that employs an employee. And of course, we all know that one tips different kinds of people. You tip valet parking people. You tip like you say, bellhops. Uh, that I mentioned a case earlier. You tip people who bring room service to your room in the hotel. You tip maids in a hotel room. A lot of people get tips, and all of them are subject to the same law, which is that the tip belongs to the person that it's left for. Management can't participate in, in the tips. You can't credit tips against wages. And, um, 
And so the question is, what about tip pooling policies um, that are in hotels or that are in valet parking? Like you leave, you leave a tip for a valet parker, and they have to tip, put in a tip pool. Often they do, and those are perfectly legal, just like they were under Layton. And if you, if there's a tip jar, let's say you go to a, I'm just making this up, let's say you go to a spa or something, and there's a tip jar at the, at the front there at the spa, and you leave $20 in the tip jar, from now on, that's going to be a tip allocation plan, and the manager of the spa, as well as the people, the masseurs and masseuses are going to be able to, to have allocation from that tip jar. Oh, and so, look, you have to think about it. In law, again, for those that are non-legal, you know, precedents are set. And I guess you could pretty much guess that these precedents are going to have wide applications throughout the service industry. And, um, you know, uh, you're, you're walking us through the history of tipping. was very useful because it shares with listeners, really, the way that the service industry has to constantly monitor these things and be aware that, you know, there might be a lawsuit coming some, from somewhere that isn't anticipated and have, you know, a great employment attorney like you or, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's a constant awareness. And, again, this is where I always say if you can't afford to have an attorney on retainer, you better have a good HR person consulting with you that at least is familiar with the issues. You're right. And, um, you know, because, listen, the suing will never end. We could go into the history of suing, and that could be another show with <laughs> many attorneys. And, you know, it, there's precedence, and then they change, and they're challenged, and then the law changes. And it could, it, it's a very important, it, it's just a very important X variable that all business people should be aware of, and that's why I always recommend knowing somebody like Adam Trieger. But we're going to move on to some other things. Unless you wanted to continue to talk about the food service industry or service industry in general, Adam, or do you feel that we kind of finished that puppy up? Well, I'm, I'm in your hands. There's, uh, whatever you want to do is fine by me. There's lots of other laws that affect the service industry as well as every other industry we can go to. But let's talk about uh, the next topic. Well, one one topic that we had discussed that I found to be fun and fascinating, and this moves more into um, the office workplace on the most part, and you had mentioned to me that there was a case about personal texting in the workplace. And on a previous show, Adam, you had we had talked quite a lot about BlackBerry use, which gets into, you know, exempt and non-exempt employees and, you know, um, what's considered a working hour, but this texting, a social text in a workplace fascinated me because, um, you know, everybody's texting these days. And sometimes a child can text their mom and say, you know, uh, I'm staying at a friend's house, can you pick me up there? And I would guess that that shouldn't be held against an employee in any way. Well, you know, the, 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 the people do surveys all the time and um, the, in the business, and the surveys constantly show that most employers believe that a certain reasonable number of personal texts or personal emails are fine and, and aren't, don't mean anything negative toward an employee, no matter what, when they do the personal texting or emailing, whether it's on company time or not. It only gets to be an issue when the employee is seen to have been be abusing the privilege, uh, doing it too much, getting distracted too often, or if the, t- if the contents of the messages become um, explicit or 
or a negative in some way. Well, negative against the employer. Right, or perhaps sexually explicit is what often happens. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's the case. Okay, so please give us give us a case example that you brought to my attention. Well, uh, back when we spoke before, we we were we were talking about a very recent Ninth Circuit case that is the federal. Court of Appeals that um, is in charge of the western part of the United States, including California, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal ruled in a case called the City of Ontario. Oh, sorry, Quan versus City of Ontario, um, that 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 Quan, who was a police officer for the City of Ontario, uh, was correct when he said that he was fired. Um, illegally uh, due to his personal text messages on a city-issued PDA. And that was a really um, incredible decision by the Ninth Circuit. It took a lot of us employment law attorneys um, by surprise. The uh, Many of us, including myself, thought that it was wrongly decided, and we were very worried that it would have broad implications to the entire employment um, to all employers in, Cal- in, in not only California but the whole country. This is a federal case. Um, even though it was only in the context, actually, of a public employer and a public employee. Um, and just one more thing, just one more nuance, there's always nuances. The reason why it had only to do with public employers and public employees is because um, Officer Kwan argued that it was the Fourth Amendment, which is the amendment to the Constitution that prevents governments from unreasonably searching its, you know, its subjects, its citizens, uh, they said that Kwan said it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment to look at his personal text messages on city-issued PDAs, and then therefore when he was fired, it was a violation of his right to privacy. Of course, the Fourth Amendment does not apply to private employers, but still, given the facts of the case, um, a lot of us were worried that the next step was going to be that uh, that that it was simply a violation of a person's right to privacy by private actors to look at personal emails or personal PDA messages. So we were all worried, but um, but Cindy, just last month on June 17, 2010, the United States Supreme Court reversed the Ninth Circuit ruling, and in doing so, um, came back to where I thought the law was stood before the Ninth Circuit issued its Quan decision, um, whereby if a if the employer has policies in place that alert employees that their personal text messages and their personal emails. Uh, really, every text message and every email sent or received on company or employer equipment is not uh, should not be considered private. As long as that policy is in place and well known, that there is no there should be no expectation of privacy in those in those messages, and therefore monitoring them, looking at them, and using them as a basis for firing somebody uh, is perfectly legal. Okay, well, more on that when we come back, because that's fascinating, and obviously that's the kind of thing that gets all kinds of people upset. There are still nuances, but I think that the law is very clear, and we'll revisit that in our last segment together, Adam Triger. So stand by, and you'll hear more from the employment attorney, Adam Triger, when we come right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. 
If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com Money. We love it, we hate it, and everything in between. You can be the master of your life and your own economics. Join Professor Laurie Lamantia each week for the program Making Peace with Money. Laurie will help you realize the power to create fulfillment in your life and shed new light on your money madness. You'll learn how to make peace with money and feel the joy and freedom renewed in your life. Making Peace with Money is broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Being here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss being here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane right here on the 7th Wave Network. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Cindy Rakowitz has won more awards than she can hang on her wall, including three Clios. Call in now at 1-866-472-5788 and you can have one. Okay, maybe not, but she will answer your questions. Back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. And we are in our final segment, sadly, with Adam Trager, partner with Stowell's Zylinga, Ruth Vaughn, and Trager. And we were talking about a lot of fascinating laws that affect employees. Um, and the last one we were talking about is something that took place in Ontario, the Quan case, I believe. And, you know, when we last left it, Adam, what, did you, let's, let's revisit, did you say that the, the ruling was because it was a company-issued device that the company won the case or won the ruling? Clarify, reiterate. Yes. The, remember, this is the city of Ontario, not exactly a company, but, okay, company, um, the, okay, but the city, so the employer, they did win the case in the end. The United States Supreme Court found in their favor. Um, you know, in this case, what happened was the, uh, Officer Kwan was, and a lot of officers in Ontario were issued a, a, a PDA, um, BlackBerry, some, 
some sort of device of that nature. And um, they, all of the employees were told that they couldn't go over a certain number of um, texts per month because if you went over that amount, um, it would cost the city money. And then they were told that if they did go over that amount, they would have to pay for it. Um, and that was part, that was the only policy the city had regarding the PDA use. On the other hand, the, the city had a policy about computer use, email use, and generalized electronic communications that said that any employee of the city who uses city-issued electronic communication devices, um, you know, those should not have an expectation of privacy in those devices or in the messages sent on those devices, and therefore the city could look at them uh, to make employment decisions. Officer Kwan argued that there was no particular policy uh, regarding the privacy or non-privacy of a message, a text message on a PDA, uh, argued that all, the only policy there was was about the idea that the employee had to pay for overages and therefore that he had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the texting and the city uh, violated the Fourth Amendment when it looked at his text messages and fired him because of it. You might wonder why he was fired because of it, and he was fired because he was, um, he was sending sexually explicit text messages. Well, over... another issue. Right, another issue. And this happens, you know, quite a lot. I, I think uh, the kids call it sexting. No, of course, they call it sexting. But, you know, so it's no surprise, really, that Quan lost. Yes, I, I'm not surprised. In the end, but I certainly was. But when the Ninth Circuit found in his favor, you know, a year ago, uh, it was definitely a shocker, and uh, it kind of uh, made me reassess what I, I thought the law was. But I'm glad the Supreme Court brought brought everything back down to reality. You see, it always goes back to the Supreme Court, Adam. <laughs> you, you know, whether it's state law, municipal law, whatever, yes. if it gets big. There's always a Supreme Court, you know. So now, if you're an employer. You know, in, in the light of the Quan case, which what the Supreme Court, what the Supreme Court did in Quan was it kind of came back to what the law used to be, and still, and therefore still is, and, and that is that look, it's all about expectations, reasonable expectations. So if you're an employee and you are going to, you know, use a, a company issued uh, PDA device or just regular email, and you're going to do it for personal reasons, remember that. Um, it's likely your employer will see what you're writing, or at least can see what you're writing. So think twice about it. And if it's something that is really personal, you know, use a use a Google account instead of the company's uh, domain. No, exactly. But in, and again, I've always thought that out of every kind of law, there's so much common sense that's involved when it comes to employment law. There's really a lot of common sense, particularly when it comes to employee behavior with things that are issued by a company. And what an employee has to really think at the end of the day is they're being paid by a company to do a job. If they're given a device, it's an extension of doing that job. And, as you know, nobody's going to get busted because they're talking to their kids via a company BlackBerry as long as it doesn't interfere with their ability to do work on a day-to-day basis. But if, if, if the messaging is excessive, it probably will interfere with a person's ability to do a job. I mean, because, you know, they're texting all day, right? I mean, they could be doing work functions via text, and I don't think that that would ever be questioned. In PR, a lot of people text for a living because you're promoting something. But at the end of the day, it's a pretty safe bet. If you're issued a company device, if you're issued a company web address, you could use it, probably, but use it wisely, 
Because at the end of the day, it's really owned and operated by the company. That's good advice. Uh, on the other hand, if you are the company, you are the employer, you really can't um, rely on the common sense approach you just mentioned. You really have to make sure that you have written and um, disseminated policies that warn your employees not to consider their uh, email and text messages private. If you don't have those policies as an employer, then the law will um, default to the other side of the coin, which is that people should have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their private messages, and to, without a policy to the contrary, you can't look at them if you're an employer, and you certainly can't make employment decisions based on those messages if you look at them. And that's why, let me say to my listeners who are employers, small employers, sole proprietors, mid-sized employers, I want to say this to all of you right now from my own corporate management experience. Do a company handbook, update it at least annually. And if you do a company handbook, and now it could be published online too, everything is going to be made very, very clear. And if your employees sign off on you know, acknowledging that they have read and understood everything that is in that handbook, you don't have to worry about anything really from an employer standpoint. Am I correct? <laughs> I know that's overgeneralized, but I'm just saying in terms of a safety net. It's a very important safety net, and may I also add that, if, that doing a handbook is really critical, but make sure that you have it reviewed by your employment law attorney because, um, you know, in the end it becomes evidence in a trial situation, and you want it to be Exhibit A for the employer, not Exhibit A for the employee. Exactly right. And I can't, I'm blown away, Adam, by so many people that I talk to who, you know, are, you know, they, they have maybe five employees, maybe they're small, and they just don't think about it. And it just blows me away. How many people have you met in your life as an employment attorney that just didn't do it? Oh, so many. I get clients in one of two ways. Either I get a client who wants to pay a little bit of money for preventative medicine to prevent lawsuits and prevent problems, or I get a client who's been sued and now they have to pay a lot of money to defend themselves because they didn't spend a little bit of money to prevent the problem in the first place. So, And I highly, highly recommend Adam Trigger. He is a friend. We are colleagues. We go out to eat together. I love his wife. <laughs> and um, I can't recommend enough for all of you that are listening. This is um, a true endorsement, and if you have any questions about what your policies may be and how they should be written, I think Adam can be very, very helpful to you. And never think that you are too small of a company to hire an employment attorney because you're never too small of a company to get sued. Well said. I thought you would like that. Well, we are at the end of our show, Adam, and you are all concerned about Having stuff to fill up the airtime, I think that you filled it up beautifully. Thank you very much. You I are. I really had a wonderful time. You're great. No, no. Well, you you are fantastic, and um, I might I want to just add a quick note for my listeners that if um, you are in the food service industry um, and you need to talk to an employment attorney, I, Adam is passionate about food. So you're not only hiring an attorney who really knows what he's doing. He'll really, really enjoy your food. Am I right? <laughs> yes, it's breakfast time. <laughs> Thank you, Adam from Solo, Zylanga, Ruth, Vaughn, and Trigger. 
And I want everybody to, again, be safe this July 4th weekend. Have fun. Be safe. Be responsible. Have a good, long weekend. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Please come back next Thursday and every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern for more insider information on the world of public relations with Cindy Rakowitz on Stars of PR. See you next week. I am an American Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.